Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of One Shot Wonders with Adam Phillips. And I'm here today with Andrew Sumner, who's a good friend. He's the uh, executive vice president at Titan Publishing and has his own, what, two podcasts, Hard Degree? Yeah, I, yeah I've got my uh, my Hard Degree podcast and yeah. uh, also I also present Forbidden Planet TV on YouTube what part of the uh, Titan Entertainment Group, our holding company, is is there's the various strands of Titan Publishing, Titan Books, and Titan Comics. But Titan Entertainment, who, who I work for, actually also own um, the Forbidden Planet retail chain in the UK, the legendary British comic book chain. Oh, yeah. Uh, which has been around for about 42 years or so, 43 years now. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, present their, uh, I present their YouTube channel. Um, we put cool. out three different episodes a week. And, you know, I've known each other for a long time, brother, and I, I've worked together on and off for a long time. Yeah. And on Hard Agree, you talk to a lot of pop culture, TV and movie stars, writers, artists. Yeah, no, that that's true, mate. So, so basically, I ended up doing this gig because I've spent most of my career as a mainstream magazine publisher. What I was originally was a was a movie and music journalist, and I used to I used to write for the NME, which is like the British version of Rolling Stone. Oh yeah, and uh, an uncut magazine, which you're, you're probably familiar with, and uh, it, that's yeah. a British magazine about music and classic movies that sells a lot of copies in the states. I ultimately became the publisher of that title, and I published a bunch of other things along the way, like Caillou Cinema, the um, the French movie magazine. Did that out mm. in Paris for a while. But, wow. but basically, um, as you know, as much as I love movies and, and music, and I really do, my, my core love is comic books. So basically, my Hard Agree podcast is really just a podcast with me talking to various people within the comic book, uh, novel writing, uh, performing and filmmaking, music making space that I've kind of, you know, contacts I've acquired over this like 35 year career that I've had. Some of whom are very good friends of yours. Also, I did a great, um, did a great mm-hmm. episode with Fabian Nicieza a while back. Uh, oh yeah, Garth Ennis is an old mate of mine. I did an episode with him. I did a did an episode with uh, Dave Gibbons. So yeah, no, it's great to be on here with you, mate. I mean, one of the great, uh, one of the great joys of my working life over the last ten years or so was uh, getting to hang out with you uh, and our mutual friends. People like Stuart Shrek and, and Vince at the uh, at the DC offices when they were both in New York and then when they're oh, in yeah. when they're in uh, Burbank and we had some great times actually between us just uh, hanging and of course uh, one of the things that you and I have in common is that we've spent a lot of time uh, presenting to the comic store owners at uh, yeah. at the Diamond events at both the uh, San Diego Comic Con and New York Comic Con and uh, yes. we've bonded over more than one of those presentations. Yeah, one of my favorite things to do. 
Yeah, me you too, know? brother. As you know, I'm, I love a, it. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of being in front of... Uh, I consider those guys, you know, many of whom are my friends, like with yourself, but they're yes. kind of our home crowd. You know, they're kind of fellow travellers, uh, fellow believers in the whole comic book ethos. And uh, right. what I love particularly about San Diego, of course, it's about uh, the propagation of the, the art form of uh, the medium of comic books, which is something that's very close to my heart. Yeah, yeah. So now... You chose for your title uh, to talk about this week, the Marvel graphic novel, The Amazing Spider-Man, Spirits of the Earth, written and yes. illustrated by Charles Vest, came out in 1990. And it's a great example of that sort of meeting of, you know, art and commerce in a lot of ways. What made you want to choose this one and talk about it? Well, it's a very meaningful uh, publication to me because interviewing Charles Vest in the UK about the publication of this book was the first piece of comics journalism that I'd ever been paid for. It wasn't the first piece of comic book or or movie journalism. It wasn't the first bit of movie journalism I was ever paid for, but it was the first bit of comic book journalism I was ever paid for doing. And at that mm. point, there used to be, you may recall this, you may have seen it, there was a, a really good British magazine published by John Brown Publishing about the comic book industry called Speakeasy. Right. And uh, I was one of the journalists for Speakeasy. It used to be uh, designed by my former housemate, Ryan Hughes, whose work oh, yeah. you'll probably be aware of because he's done a ton of work on on classic DC Comics logos over the years. And he's worked on designing books like The Intimates and whatnot. Also a yes. comic book artist. He's done some great work with Grant Morrison. Yeah, but, he's um, incredible talent. He's a, he's a genius. I, I, when it comes to his art, he is, he is absolutely a genius. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't use that word to his face. And he's not a genius when it comes to to the rest of his life, which is, why I'm, happy to, which is <laughs> why I'm happy to specify. He's he's filled with human frailty, like the rest of us, when it comes to his life away from the drawing board. But yeah, he is a, a he's a truly great creator, yes. very very gifted bloke. And so he used to he used to be the designer for Speakeasy. I was I was one of the journalists. And yeah, the first job I ever got paid for was interviewing Charles Vess. In Birmingham, which is a very dull, grey British city. If you've, I don't know if you've ever been at it. <laughs> I think I've been there. There was a convention I went to. The one convention I went to in the UK, I think, was in Birmingham. I'm not sure because oh, it was a long okay, time yeah. ago. Yeah, it, it's basically essentially the second city of the UK, uh, second mm -hmm. largest city in the UK, uh, and it's, it's in the Midlands. The day that I travelled there from London, I'm from Liverpool originally, but I've had my home here in London for 38 30 years or so, I, mm -hmm. I travelled on the train to see Charles and it was it was at uh, Phil Clark's Nostalgia and Comics store. You know, this is a good three decades before I ever worked with Forbidden Planet. And uh, Phil, that was Phil, Phil Clark's Nostalgia and Comics was, it was, a, was a really famous comic book store back in the day. And uh, Phil Clark, who was also, I believe he was like an art dealer as well. He was a good friend of Charles. And it was a very rainy, dull, grey, classically British day. I know the day exactly because uh, as a result of interviewing Charles, he gave me a copy of the book, which he inscribed to me. I've got it right here and I've just checked the inscription. And it was actually uh, September 30th, 1990 was the day we had our conversation. Ah. So uh, I interviewed him about the genesis of the book. Uh, and it was also around the time that he, uh, he illustrated Sandman 19. Yes. And around the same time that he was illustrating the books of magic, both in Neil Gaiman. And, yeah, um, he, that comes up in the article because I noticed the. I read the article, and you know, the first half of it more or less is about 
Spirits of the Earth, and then the second half is kind of about other projects. And of course, when your other projects are Sandman 19 and Books of Magic, you're really in the stratosphere there. Oh, yeah, it's solid, it's solid gold stuff. And by the way, that article that you're referring to is, is the article that's published in the uh, the Christmas 1990 edition of Speakeasy. So uh-huh. I, 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 was, I was looking at it, and actually I must have turned it around very, very quickly, given the fact that I spoke to Charles mm. on, on September 30th, because that Christmas edition must have come out at the beginning of November uh, and it was already out, you know, it was out in a relatively short period of time. Actually, it, you've seen those pages. So again, yeah. you know, when I tell you that Speakeasy was designed by Ryan Hughes, you can tell because those pages are really nicely laid out, actually, aren't they? The way he yes. combines the article with Charles's very linear and tall sort of artwork. I think he did a great job with that. Yeah, it's true. So this is a, just a spectacular beautiful book i mean i saw it when it came oh, it's out wonderful yeah and you know i haven't looked at it much since then but it's it's just so beautiful charles really has almost never done a superhero project but he does a great spider-man it's somewhere between ditko and gil kane in a way you know i agree um, i agree and I, you know it's funny because you were talking about or you have mentioned a little bit about the setting in in Scotland being so evocative, but I found it really his his shots of New York City and Central Park at the beginning of the story. I kind of was you know looking at that and getting feeling a little uh, nostalgic as well. Yeah, I agree, it, mate. I mean, I I think his cityscapes are just as good as his as his um, Highlandscapes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's just fun, fun stuff. You know, I should mention also Charles was one of the first professionals i ever met in the business i went to uh, like a creation con around 1978 or 79 or something and i guess even now but back then for sure you could like walk up to somebody's table and just start chatting and have a a conversation and sort of learn who they were or whatever and i didn't i had no idea who he was of course but he was just this very open friendly inviting person who was talking about his art, what he wants to do and everything. And it was really a lovely uh, conversation to have, you know, for me just as a fan. Yeah, I, I agree with you, mate. I think um, <clears throat> I think Charles is a beautiful person, actually. Really lovely gentleman. He's got a great yeah. sort of quiet warmth to him. And, um, you know, he has this considered brilliance with his artwork. What I, I love about his art is it doesn't – sometimes, you know, when you look at Kirby – you're capturing this kind of elemental power that just jumps off the page. That's not what you get with Charles Vest. What you get, it's almost like looking at this incredibly detailed, almost kind of magic eye picture where you you, you just slowly get pulled into the artwork. And there is so much quiet detail there that it, it almost has a hypnotic effect rather than a jammer, huge Kirby fist between your eyes effect. And, um, <laughs> yes. you know, I, I find his, his artwork is endlessly revisitable for those, for those reasons, because you can look at the same page again, again, and again, and just all that, the intricate detail in his brushwork, it's fantastic, or pen work, it's fun, fantastic to look at. It really is, but it never overloads the image. He can compose a picture with a lot of detail in the right places. You know, I'm looking at the page at the uh, 
pub, I guess it is, where the, yeah. the old woman sort of enters in a big panel at the yeah. bottom of the page. The perspective is very dramatic, and the shadows under her sort of cloak are very dramatic, but there's big open space around to let that image breathe. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. And uh, I, the, 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 that that's so true. I mean, there's a couple of wonderful things about it. I mean, I, I haven't counted the number of pages, but I imagine it's about, what, 64 pages long, the story, I would guess. I think it, I think it was 70. I looked it up yesterday because I was more, looking at yeah. yeah. And um, what's, re- the, the, what's really beautiful about it is, it first of all, it opens with a kind of uh, whole page like frontispiece, which has the Spider-Man logo on it, the title of the book written and illustrated by Charles Vess. And yeah. it's like the classic opening page of one, his more, of one of his more fairy-based tales, but the motif is Spider-Man. And then the actual first page of the story itself is just this wonderful whole-page image of Spidey swinging past the Chrysler building Mm-hmm. At night, where there's a kind of thunderstorm happening and the lightning is hitting the top of the Chrysler building. And it looks very much like the kind of whole page that a classic Spidey artist would illustrate, yeah. but through a Charles Vest prism, which gives it this kind of magical, sort of austere beauty almost. Yeah, it's very moody. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very moody indeed. And and for, for, for anybody who's listening to this who's not encountered the the, the the, the book before the essential premise of the story is it happens during the era my favorite era when when uh when spidey and mary jane are actually married relatively shortly after they've been married yeah because when charles told me when he was originally creating the book spider-man was in the black outfit by the time he came to finish it off he, he was in the classic red and blue and the, the premise of the story is mary jane through a relative has inherited some land in the highlands of scotland but there are some legal details with the ownership of the place to be sorted out. So so Peter and Murray Jane take a two-week holiday up in the Highlands and uh, go up there to sort out the property. But they get involved in what originally appears to be some kind of ancient spirit and furry and ghost-related mischief. That's how the, the first <laughs> half of the story plays out with Peter and Murray Jane interacting with the locals. And in classic Marvel fashion, it doesn't quite turn out to be exactly what you expect it to be. In the first half, you think, man, this is Spider-Man directly meets Neil Gaiman, you know, furry, a Charles Vest furry and magic. And it's not quite that way. There is more of a technological twist to it while still retaining the pattern of all this sort of magical beauty. Yeah. But that's essentially the premise of the story. Right. But and, I, I think uh, what's interesting about it is that Vess himself had spent many, um, men, you know, many weeks and months holidaying in and exploring the Highlands. It's a place he has a real feel for. And uh, by the way, at the, at, at, there's after this, when the story finishes, there's six or seven text pages with, um, oh, yeah. with, with Charles talking about his trips to the Highlands, one of which was with Mike Kaluta. And, and talking about interacting with various Scottish people. And there's a big list of thank yous to them in the text piece. And, and I, I think it's lovely to read that, but it also explains why, unlike a lot of US comic books, the um, 
I know I lived through reading the, the US created but British published original incarnation of Captain Britain, right, in the <laughs> mid 70s, which yeah. I love. But the, but the local detail in it, even though it's created by Claremont, who is essentially English, it is, uh-huh. is way off. You know, there's just things that happen that <laughs> English people would never say. But generally speaking, and I say this as somebody who is more Scottish and Irish than I am English. My grandmother was Scottish. My, my grandfather was an Irishman. But I think uh, I think he gets a lot of the turn of phrase from the Scots people in the Highlands pretty much spot on, which, which US authors often don't. Yeah, and, sure. and I think that's, that's because Charles... It is very difficult, and it's because... Charles spent so much time up there, I think, and really absorbed the community. Yes. Yeah, that's that's important. And it's it's a rare thing to be able to do that, of course, you know, um, if you don't happen to be from that area. And it, it works both ways. I mean, I find I'm, I'm kind of sensitive to those tricks of the language that either ring true or don't. You know, if you're reading a British author trying to write a, an American character and saying something in sort of a British turn of phrase, you know, it doesn't ring true. And the same oh, it goes doesn't for ring true at all. Yeah. the other way around, of course. So, yeah. And, it, but if you have the, the opportunity to spend that time and get to know the place so well, it's, it's just fantastic. And it um, absorbed the culture. And there's some very interestingly uh, prescient things about the story not the least of which is that early in their arrival in the highlands and this is about this is about 10 pages in mm-hmm. the the page where you see the classic image of the jet and and peter and mary jane arriving in customs is then followed by a frame in which they take the west highlands railway well the west highlands railway is is an old uh, steam train that curves around the uh, glenfinnan railway bridge which is the harry potter railway bridge there's a very visually famous arched bridge that um the the harry potter train and it's curved it goes across and that is the west highland railway bridge at glenfinnan and that is there in spirits of the earth you know a good good 20 years or 15 years before harry potter was Mm. even in the in the uh, you know the common um understanding Uh, the interesting thing about that precise location is that it is many things. It, it is the Harry Potter railway bridge. But right. the reality is that if you stand in that location, which, which I've done with my kids, and you have the, the railway bridge behind you, curving behind you, mm-hmm. what you're actually looking at is the top of Loch Shiel. And Loch Shiel is a very long and narrow lock or lake with a very, very still surface with with mountains on either side of it. And it has, it's still like a mirror and the mountains are perfectly reflected. And wow. it's an incredibly beautiful spot. And it's, um, it's kind of the other resonances for Glenfinnan would be that there's a monument there, which you can, which you can climb up and it's, you can, it's, a, it's like a tower. You look out over the, you can look out at the railway line. You can look out over the lock, but the monuments there, because it's where Bonnie Prince Charlie, who is a, you know, a kind of, um, a, a nobleman who got uh, who got expelled from the UK at one point because he was a potential uh, inheritor to the crown. He returned and tried to mount a rebellion, and it's where he landed. That's the point where he landed when he came back to Scotland. Is yeah. at that point in Glenfinnan, but but also yeah. uh, Glenfinnan is uh, the location of and the birthplace of um, Highlander. So that's where um, 
that's where Connor McLeod is actually from in the Highlander movies and where Duncan <laughs> McLeod is from in the Highlander TV show is Glen Finnan, which is funny because there's not really a village there or anything. It's literally a fairly bar- barren space, but it's yeah, a barren okay. space of incredible beauty. So all of that is encapsulated in this in this comic book panel, which I didn't notice the first time I read it, but when I looked... No, it's a small movie, panel. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's not the, yeah, you yeah. know... But it, it's a really, it just goes to how precise Vess's Highland detail is that that's yeah. not a vista that he's made up. It's really in there. Now I want to rewatch um, the 39 steps and see if it pops up in there because I wouldn't be surprised. Right no. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be surprised either. Yeah, they do end up in Scotland with the Crofter, I know, but I can't, it's just been a a bunch of years since I watched that movie. Now, which I, version of the 39 steps are you talking about, mate? You I know the there's ro- a lot. <laughs> are you thinking of the Robert Powell one from the seventies, no, no, or no, the no. or the the Robert Donat one from the thirties, the Hitchcock the, one? The Hitchcock one. I don't. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps you don't know, but I'm a, a Hitchcock nut. Ah, and, I didn't, uh, mate, but it makes complete sense to me now. That I've, I've seen that. I've seen like all of his movies, and the biggest concentration I ever had on one of his movies was the Thirty Nine Steps because there's a stage version that was running on Broadway when I was I was blogging about Hitchcock movies and they uh, asked me to come and talk after the show at the um, Broadway theater for the, and if you ever get the chance to see the 39 step stage show, it's, it's fantastic and hilarious. Oh, that's the one that telescopes the whole book into a, into a swift pace kind of 90 minutes or whatnot. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of combines elements from the book and the movie, the original movie. So. Oh, wonderful. I'm all that. I'm all in on that. I I remember when it was on in London, but I just never got the chance to see it. But I would love to see it. Yeah, but I I did dig into. I saw that there are several versions of that um, story, and the well, '70s one is is not as fun as the. You know, Hitchcock took a lot of liberties with the he, original he really story. Did. Obviously, yeah, he, he really did. The the '70s one with Robert Powell, who's the guy who played um, he played Christ in Jesus of Nazareth. He's a great mm. British actor. He's really good. Curly yes. Herd fellow, that that's that's the first version that I saw, and it's, it's very like the book. There was also a, a great version, maybe about uh, ten years ago, with the with one of the guys who starred in the the British show. Uh, it's called MI6 in the states. It was called Spooks over here. It was a ah. spy show, and um, and that was made by the BBC. That was also pretty good. But it's one of those endlessly flexible tales that opens itself up to being readapted every 10 15 20 years or so yeah yeah <laughs> what else on this in this particular book <laughs> oh i tell you on this particular book let's get back I've to spidey on, yeah let's get back <laughs> to spidey and spirits of the earth so so it, it's produced in the classic british annual format uh, yeah i hadn't thought of that but you're right so and and so it's a it's a it's a leather effect hardbound book with uh, a dust jacket and it's got a couple of notable things which is uh, it has end papers and the end papers the the beautiful line illustration end papers same front and back yes of spidey within a very detailed highland environment in in black and white and charles is uh charles this is something when charles came to the project that he said that he wanted to do and and the inspiration is we have a very long-running newspaper strip here in the UK. It's run in the in the uh, the Daily Express for most of the the last century. Uh, it's a 
and it's about the adventures of, of a burr. It's called Rupert the Burr, and it was mm. created by um, a, a, a fine artist called Alfred Bestel. And Alfred Bestel used to, every year, they used to create a, a Rupert the Burr annual. So in, in British comics, most of our comics, before the last 20 years or so, comics run in a very different way. Native British comics, I know you'll know this, Adam, mm. are, are mainly anthology titles. And right. so that you have the they they used to be published only in black and white. This is when I was a kid, and there are anthology titles, and there would be either adventure titles or humor titles, but they didn't tend to mix very often. And so the best example that's well known to quite a lot of contemporary American comic book fans would be 2000 AD, which is like say five or six science fiction stories each week, one of which is Judge Dredd. Yeah. But there were yeah. hordes of the there were hordes of these and the way it worked in the UK is you would get every year you would get an annual based a hardbound annual annual version of said comics for Christmas for the Christmas market that come mm. on sale in November and you get them in your Christmas stocking and there'd be about there'd be about 160 pages with hardbound covers with with finer with actually you know proper either watercolors or, or, or oil painting versions of the characters on the cover. And that's very much the template for how this how Spirits of the Earth looks. And on the on the Rupert annuals, which is why I started on that jag, is that Alfred Bestel always used to do these very fine line illustrations of Rupert, who used to do things like go and visit Furryland. He's he's like um he's a white burr who wears a very distinctive costume, which is basically top yellow tartan trousers a matching yellow tartan scarf and and, and, a, and a red sweater. And that's his kind of uniform. And mm. um, and so Bestel would do these very, very detailed end papers and Vessel was loved those. And so Charles, when he came to the project, one of his things he wanted to do was create something that was hardbound. And as I say, it's in this kind of leather effects. If you, you take the dust jacket off, what you'll see is kind of the, the, the book has this kind has these kind of like leather effect hardbound covers where the where the piece of artwork I just told or mentioned from the frontispiece is like embossed in a kind of mock gold leaf that's that says Spirits of the Earth with Spider-Man printed on it. It's really quite a beautiful package and um I know that it turned out to be packaged so beautifully because Marvel's uh-huh. production manager was probably somebody you know actually mate because oh, of course. It, yes. it, was, it was Alison Gill. Yes. Who went on to be the head of production and probably still is for DC. She is. Yeah, and we and, adore you know, Allison. She, she's the she's so great. She's incredibly talented. Um, yes. I've only met her briefly once, but when at my first um, my first uh, nine to five job in the publishing industry, um, man, this is a real Robert Warren of a story. So I'm going to get through it as quickly as I can. My first <laughs> nine to five job when I was you know wanting to be a journalist but writing about you know, movies, music, comic books, whatever, in the evenings. My day job was laying out classified ads, being a production controller in a classified department of a Uh. health service publisher. The guy that I used to work with, who's one of the heads of department, was a guy called Nigel Ballack. And Nigel Ballack had been the production controller on the Marvel weeklies that I read when uh, when I was at high school a few years before. So when I finally realized that was his surname and that's what he did, I was like, wow, you know, you're the Nigel Ballack, you know, and he was, <laughs> that's the first time I think anybody had ever used that precise confluence of words. 
He was like, yeah, you know, that's me. Because I had all these comic books at home that had his name in them. But he used sure. to work with Alison Gill. So she worked for Marvel UK. Then she flipped over to Marvel US. And then, you know, she flipped over to DC where she's been in a very senior production position ever since. But oh, yeah. she she's British and therefore all of Charles's reference points for the annual style, for the end papers and for the dust jacket, she would have got all of those straight away. And as mm-hmm. you know, Alison's thing is she's very good with uh, with high quality stuff. Oh, gosh, yes. And I'll, I'll say also, you know, yeah, I worked with her closely for a long time. And I mean, she's a, a senior vice president at DC, um, but she's she always was available to talk. And if I ever had something that I had to figure out, she would be right there to point the way and say, let's make a call and figure it out with me. Usually, you know, she she would delegate to whoever whoever it, it had to move to, but she was always super open to whatever I was trying to figure out. And uh, I always appreciated her availability for me. Yeah, well, I, you know, a mutual friend of yours and mine is uh, is Bob Wayne, and he always used to, Bob Wayne always used yes. to use the, 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 you know, the former head of sales and marketing at DC. And uh, and actually, how I first met you, uh, by the way, Adam was via was via Bob when we oh, were sure. working on the uh, the Albion titles back in the early two thousands. Yeah, that's right. And uh, which seems like yesterday, but in fact, it's almost twenty years ago. Yeah. Uh, and he used to talk about Alison in in the highest and most praiseful terms. And, yes. And actually, I'm looking at my original article now just to see what Charles said about her. And and what he said precisely about working on Alison with Alison on Spirits of the Earth was that I also got involved with the book's production as much as possible. Marvel's production manager, Alison Gill, is British and she really enjoyed the book. She made a point of flying up to the printers and overseeing Spirits on press. Mm. She made them print it on better quality paper. <laughs> so Marvel have managed to produce a better quality book than they normally would do. So, yeah, it, it, she was a fundamental part of creating Spirits of the Earth for him. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, to c- contrast this a little bit, at least, with some of the previous graphic novels, because he mentions it in the article or he alludes to it, that, you know, this is a big step up from some of the earlier graphic novels, which were basically just big comic books, but they were like by, you know, illustrated by pretty standard Marvel talent who were great in their own right, but they weren't, nobody was painting, you know, the living monolith or whatever that was, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. This this is, it's not just a Spider-Man story. It's sort of a a journey. I agree. agree. Yeah. You know, just a spectacular countryside. I I mean, the, the truth is the, the, the story itself is really quite rudimentary. You know, the actual narrative, um, although I think I think Charles does one thing really, really well, and I think at the point where this was produced, he did it better than anybody else who, who'd actually done this, uh, and that's he, um, he portrays Peter and Mary Jane as a real married couple. They're, yeah. they're, they feel real. Uh, they feel like a couple who are actually married when you read the book which I, I, at the time it was produced, they didn't really come across that way in the comic book, but they really do seem that way here. I think in part because Charles 
Charles bases their relationship. Not that anything major happens. It's more just the vibe of them being together. He based yes. it on his relationship with his own wife. And I think you can feel that authenticity. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's funny because in the article, you know, he was mentioning what kind of, what he could get away with in portraying them as a couple, as a married couple, I should say. And then it doesn't really come across in the book as as going as far as he he sort of indicated he would he might in the article, you know, he yeah, no, sex and things like that. No, absolutely, yeah. Because in the article he talks about, you know, can I picture them having sex? Can I have them be naked? Not in a salacious way, just as a day to day part of what couples do. But uh, this, yeah. I, I get a sense when you read the dialogue in this book, and this is something I didn't ask him about, is that I think you can see the hand of uh, the editor on the book. I think it was Jim Salakrup. You'd yes. see the, the hand of Marvel editorial in the dialogue with just some mm. of the things that get said. And, you know, I, I suspect there are a couple of like corporate Marvel assists in the way that the story was told from a dialogue perspective. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't be too surprised. Sure. Although um, I know Jim quite well. He was my first boss in comics. Yeah. On, on Marvel Age magazine. I, I worked for him back in the 80s. And I'm sure Jim would do whatever was necessary to make this story work in sort of the Marvel tonality. But at the same time, I know Jim's guiding principle to a large degree was to hire the right talent and stay out of the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which, which is supremely laudable. I mean, yes. you know, like I said, I think the narrative is fairly perfunctory once you get past right. the essential MacGuffin, which I think the essential MacGuffin is 90% of what it is, which is... Spider-Man and Mary Jane go to the Highlands. And and you could almost read this book without any of the dialogue and it, and it wouldn't matter because I think you'd have a very oh, similar yeah. emotional experience because it's really about the beautifully observed art that Charles has produced, which doesn't just capture the physicality of the Highlands, but it, it captures the beauty of Highland myth as well. So even as the story progresses and... Um, and the outcomes are perhaps not not as as magical or, or or furry intoned as you might think they are when you begin to read the story. Right. Even though there's some technology that appears, it's a very uh, Vessian form of technology. You know that you're not really looking at Jack Kirby like constructs and Kirby Crackle. You're looking uh-huh. at something very different, which feels very much at home in the world of like mythic magic. Yeah, it's true. It, it was funny. I, I I did have a moment of thinking, oh, we're getting to a little bit of a Scooby Doo ending here when the you know, yeah, um, the magic didn't turn out to be magic really. But it, you know, it's not really that. It's just got a little bit of that flavor. Yeah, um, that that's right. I mean, because it's not really a tremendously realistic outcome either. It's not like yeah. suddenly you know the exactly the bad guys mask comes off and it's the it's the shopkeeper that they, that they've talked to earlier in the episode it's not quite as rudimentary as that no 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 it isn't so anyway but uh yeah it's a fantastic story and of course always great to get a a chance to look at charles's artwork again anything else you want to add about this um yeah i I would say i I touched upon um text piece at the end a scottish journey and that's really rather beautifully produced as well because you get to see a a charles vest map of scotland which he's produced himself. You, yeah, it's you really get pretty. To, you get to see a kind of widescreen image of Charles sat in the Highlands, which he's he's done in the age-old pre-digital way of taking about <laughs> seven different photographs and then lining them up together. Mm-hmm. And um, he's really very gracious about the 
the, the Scottish people who, who've like befriended him and put him up. And um, you get a very clear sense of the fact that, it, you know, he loves the countryside. He loves the Highlands. He loves hiking. He loves, he loves a malt whiskey, which uh, makes him okay in my book. Yes. You know, and I think, uh, I think read, I think reading that article, sometimes you get text pieces in, you know, one shot comics or album editions and they're completely perfunctory. But I think in this case, reading that text piece after reading the comic really does yield dividends and you get a very complete 360 degree experience. Yeah, it's true. And the, uh, the sketches and little paintings and things are lovely. You know, you really get a sense of how he kind of recorded the way he was going to portray these settings in the story later. It's fantastic. For sure. And I think another um, another interesting behind the scenes fact that, that I kind of rinsed out, it's in my article, uh, my speakeasy article, which, by the way, it's going to be virtually impossible for anybody to find. But uh, if you uh, if you contact myself or uh, or Adam, we'll always be happy to send you scans of the article in question, because uh, I think it's very hard to find any of those issues of speakeasy, particularly in oh, the US. Sure. Yes. But um, but uh, there's another story Charles tells about. At the time that we met, he was working on a, a kind of follow-up story or a story in the same vein, which would be a Wolverine story, mm. which he uh, which he scripted was scripting with uh, Mark Asquith. Now th- that's interesting for a number of reasons because Mark Asquith's another friend of mine. He exists yeah. in a similar space to myself, but he's Canadian, and he <laughs> spent the last thirty years being the uh, being the guy uh, behind some of a. Uh, Canadian TVs like uh, pop culture channels, sci-fi channels, the 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 put the Canadian version of the sci-fi channel, if you will, and he truly has met everybody and inter- interviewed everybody, whether that's Alan Moore or whether it's uh, Frank Miller. But one of the things Mark did do, he was the co-writer on the um, on the DC version of the Prisoner, right? And uh, and so around about this period of time, he would have been coming off that. And uh, they had this plan to put the book together. But I believe the reason it never actually saw the light of day is that it was being put together in that era where at that point, and this is circa 1990, the only Wolverine comics that got written were written by Chris Claremont. And anybody else wanting to come in and do something outside of like the Claremont's oeuvre wasn't ever actually approved. So I think oh, it yeah. never happened for that reason. Yeah, that makes sense. I know Mark a little bit too, by the way. But the vest version of Wolverine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mark's got an amazing address, but right. He's a really lovely bloke. And in fact, there's an episode of uh, my Hard Degree podcast, which is uh, with Mark. So if you want to hear Mark chatting about his career, you can check out the, oh, nice. the Mark Asquith episode of Hard Degree. Very cool. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and I appreciate it. Always great to talk. Adam, it's, it's always great to talk with you, brother. It really is. I mean, needless to say, I could start banging on about comics in general. I could jump out of the conversation we've been having and stay on the line for another <laughs> for another couple of hours very easily. But it's, oh uh, mate, it's always a pleasure getting the chance to chat with you. Yeah, you too. I hope to uh, see you one of these days. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate your time. And this has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I hope to see you soon. And it is always a massive pleasure hanging out with you, brother. Fantastic. All right. Thanks again. Take care, mate. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.